you know, I love the church. He said, really? Yeah, I thought about it. You know, the church has been foundation in my life. And when you think church, I just, again, I want to mention, don't look at bricks, mortar, or stone. Because that's what you're thinking. You're thinking wrong. The church is the body of believers. People put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The people in this building, that's what counts. And when the church is functioning the way God ordained it to be, in Scripture, its impact on the community is awesome. I, I thought back to my experiences in church. I can go back quite a ways, yeah. And uh, in the process, I thought about some of the highlights in terms of church. I was involved in a little church. It was a little church in Bramley back in the 60s. I was invited out to daily vacation Bible school. Through it, I put my faith and trust in Christ, and it changed my life. But I remember that little church of 75 people or so growing to a church of 600 before I went to Bible school and coming back and preaching at it on a Sunday morning with 1,500 in the morning service and now going to another building program and with its impact in the community. And so it was a living, vibrant institution. And <clears throat> I thought my youth days was spent with the youth group doing a lot of different things with youth. I remember uh, wearing the bell-bottom blue jeans. The uh, flowery shirts, you know, with the puffy sleeves. Playing my guitar, singing, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. All the girls thought it was kind of cute, but I really couldn't play that good. Uh, just different things, but it was always involved with church, going to youth conferences. They used to have the FBYPA rallies, Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Youth, and we would meet we'd, Thanksgiving weekend. We'd always go down to London, and they'd have fantastic speakers and worship music and and through, through that, I met a lot of believers and Christians that profess Christ, and it impacted, it changed my life. And I'm thankful for that. And, uh, but it wasn't the building, the bricks, or the mortar. It was people I rubbed shoulders with. I, it's funny, I was sitting there thinking about that just before I got up, and I thought, I remember as a young person in uh, Sunday school, I'd barely gone to Brownlee Baptist perhaps maybe a year after accepting Christ and uh, being baptized with my mom and dad in the fall of 1968, so my little certificate. And uh, and thinking, uh, a guy named Don uh, Fraser came up to me and said, Hey, Adrian, what are you doing? I don't know. Well, I've got a group of young people, so he heard us all in his big, huge station wagon when you didn't have to worry about seatbelts. And we rushed off to the nursing homes around the Bramley-Brampton area, and we would sing hymns and talk to people about Jesus. I was back in the 60s, and I thought, what kind of impact did it have on my life? And I remember his band, Mom always thought that Don Fraser's band was the best. It was called the Melodares Quartet. It was four-part harmony. You would like that, Lance. They would play on pots and pans, and the electric voice accordion was, and that was like, that was the most awesome show on earth, like on Sunday nights at church. You say, man, you must have been desperate for music back then. Music back then was a whole lot different, I'll tell you. But again, the people that I met that impacted my life, the Church of Jesus Christ, had a huge change. But I found that in 39 years of ministry that no church is perfect. Do you know that? It probably shocks you and surprises you. I know you're like, really? Um, but the church is not a business. It's not a school or a hospital, even though we've been compared to those institutions. The church is a family. Some are healthy and some are dysfunctional. I'm sure you know those. And yet uh, there can be no churchless 
Christianity, because a lot of people will say to you, you know, I don't need the church. I go like, yeah, really? Uh, you know, you need God either. They go like, what do you mean by that? Well, I said, God ordained the church. It's his body. It's his family. And in Matthew 16, 18, it says, he said to this when he talked about the church, because it was brought into existence by Jesus Christ himself. He said this, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So I'm building. I'm building. And I like the way Tony Evans puts it. I'm building my church. Because <laughs> if it's your church, it's going down. <laughs> Uh, but when Jesus is building his church, it's, it's growing. It's going places. Uh, the word church in the Greek language is called ekklesia. And what's that mean? It's interesting when you look at the actual Greek language. The idea, again, is called out ones. Called out from among them. And so when Jesus brought the church into existence by faith in Christ, we are called out of this world into a body called the body of Christ, the church it's called an assembly. It consists of believers in Jesus Christ who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, committed to one another in love, called out from the world into following the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is the church. But I thought, time to remind you about our core values. <laughs> and you see those four signs behind you, which you probably forget that they probably thought, look, it looks like nice artwork. But, anyways, let me just walk you through what, our, what do we believe as a church? What are our core values? First of all, worship. We envision a church lifting high the name of God through personal and corporate prayer, giving and contemporary music that expresses God's attributes and redemptive work. That's a core value. We value worship. We think it's really important. Teaching. We envision a church committed to the bold and practical teaching of God's word and the language of people without compromise. Very distinctly different from a lot of other churches. And I say that very carefully, but there's a lot of churches that compromise the teaching of God's word to becoming more what people think it means rather than what does the Bible really say. Outreach. Yeah. We visited a church on mission with God to shamelessly proclaim the message of the gospel local, regionally, and internationally. We believe in reaching out to others so others can hear the good news, what Jesus Christ can do in their lives. Community. We envision a church seeking to strengthen our bonds as brothers and sisters by lovingly meeting in small groups and corporate worship for the purpose of spiritual growth and public witness. And part of that small group right now, we're doing on Sunday mornings at 9.30. You heard Lance talk about it. And we're continuing to see more and more people coming out for prayer because without prayer, nothing happens, my friend. We can talk all we want about prayer, but unless the church gets on its knees, bows their heads in prayer and say, Oh God, would you work in my heart? Would you work in our church? Would you work in this community? Nothing happens. Another way to phrase those four terms is, first of all, you need to connect. It means connect to God. That's important. Secondly, you need to grow. It means grow in your walk with God. Uh, thirdly, you need to serve. Serve in the church. Serve in the community. And lastly, reach. What do you do? Reach out to the lost. Connect, grow, serve, reach. Those are four words that just kind of typify what we're about at Lighthouse. Despite the opposition of the world to the church, it's important to learn from Scripture how God views the church and his expectation of what he says church should be about because the world really doesn't give a rip about church. The church, the world would like to shut down the church. 
In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, that's in for church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. See, the church in the New Testament is described many times as a household. The household in that day, however, was quite different from ours today. The house consisted of parents, children, included family workers, stewards, all working all under one roof. Their various duties, responsibilities, and genders all under one roof. And over all this would be a master of the house who would oversee everyone. That was the typical household in that day. The picture of a church, however, also in variety and structure, shows that it's a variety of talents and gifts today, the church, of men, women, children, deacon, elders, responsible to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, for how we run his church. It's somewhat a foreign concept to our culture because we tend to be individualistic in our world and, and goal-oriented. It's not about family, it's about, it's about me. However, that's really not what God intended when he talked about church. Because a lot of people say, well, I've come to church and I expect the church to meet my needs. Really? And I say to them, well, I guess this church is not the one for you then. Because when you come to this church, I say, we're looking for how you can help serve God and, by, and serve, learn to serve others. The focus is not about you. It's about serving people around you. Because Christ Jesus, who sent the example, said, I came to the world not to be served, but to serve others. You can come to church and go through the programs and activities, but if you don't live in close touch with God, you're really missing out. Because a lot of people say, well, I come to church because I like the music. Uh, sometimes I like the worship. Sometimes I've talked to people. So why do you go to church? Oh, the music is so good. I said, what else do you go to church for? Well, that's about it. I said, really? I think you're really missing out. Because that's not what church is about. The family is not about uh, hearing good music all the time because the family you grew up in, did you, you become part of that family just because you liked the music? Well, we didn't play music. Well, we did on the radio. That's another story. But anyways, yeah, I said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. The church is to be a place of refuge. We treat one another with love and respect as brothers and sisters of Christ. How a family ought to operate. Even though we live in a society where there's a lot of dysfunction going on in the home, the church should not be characterized by dysfunction. A church is to exemplify to the world a place of peace, love, acceptance, support, and how they care for one another. Well, the early church fathers wrote of the New Testament church how it attracted so many people because of this one phrase. He says, look how they love one another. In other words, it ain't normal. People that really care about each other, people that really work together as, one, as a family, it's really, really odd because... That isn't typical what happens in most churches or let alone in the world. So when the, the, the body of people outside of this church look at a, a church like Lighthouse and they see that we love one another, we care for one another, we encourage one another, we support one another, and we don't badmouth one another, and we don't slam one another, they're going like, hey, something's going on there. Got to check that out. Ephesians 2.19 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and the member of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as chief cornerstone. We're all members of the church. The church 
of the living God. The emphasis there in the New Testament is that it's the fact is not that it says you're a church of God. It's you are God's church. He owns you. He owns the church. Romans 9, 25 and 26 says this. As he says in Hosea, I will call them, speaking of the Gentiles, my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God, seeing that he would bring all Gentiles, all non-Jews, into the body of Christ, the church, as part of his assembly or gathering. The emphasis here is on God, who is alive, and the body is to be a living, breathing organism that shares Christ's love with a lost and dying world. The church meets to worship the living God, whose members have the Holy Spirit residing in them, working together for a common cause. And Paul describes a church as a church as the pillar and foundation of the truth. Because without the, uh, the church, who is it that's going to proclaim the truth? There's no proclamation of truth whatsoever, apart from the church of the body of Christ. See, all truth comes from God. The word of God must be taught with authority and conviction in all churches. And when the word of God is not taught with conviction and authority in churches, we wonder why people aren't getting saved. We wonder why people aren't coming to Christ. We wonder why the church is losing impact in the world around it because it's not sticking central to the teaching and precepts of God's Word. See, man's opinions, in all honesty, are irrelevant. They are irrelevant. Because I said the one thing that's intriguing about God's Word is that God's Word stands forever. God's Word is truth. It doesn't change. But if you look at the values of our society that we live in, the values that I grew up in the 60s have changed in the 70s, changed the 80s, changed the 90s, and the new millennium, it continues to change, 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 and they think change is always good. But the answer is change is not always good. And what does mankind place its values on? Whatever they think works. Whatever they think is best. Whether they conjure up in their own mind. There's no sense of, there's no sense of uh, distinctive value that's based on something that's non-changing. So, uh, why is that important? Well, anybody have a GPS? The one thing with a GPS is that you always have to continually do what with it? You have to update it, right? And one of the things I found out when I used a GPS that I bought, I think I got it from you, Joanne. You had it on, I bought it on the buy-sell site from you, and I, I took it, and then, Rose and I, I think we we're, I forget what city in the States we're at. We plugged it in and we're saying, we're looking for a, and Rose likes Mexican food. She, if I want to really bless her, take her to a Mexican restaurant. Like, she is so happy. Want to bless me? It's a steakhouse, okay? Uh, just in case you wondered. <laughs> so we, we, we type in and we go and we follow this GPS and we land up at a place that's not Mexican. It's not even a steakhouse. It's some kind of Japanese grill. I realized, oh, wait a minute, something's changed. And you know what I mean sometimes, that unless the GPS is up to date, it'll take you places you didn't want to go, really. But what I'm so thankful is that God's Word never, ever changes. The values in it are always consistent. The scriptures, are, the scriptures are to be our guidebook on how we're to live for Christ. And all we do, so when we continue to pound the Bible, say, we've got to live by the book, got to go by the book. 
That's because the book never changes. It's the inspired, inerrant Word of God. It's to be our guidebook for life. If I want my life to change, if I want to keep my life on course, if I want to keep my life on direction with Jesus Christ, I need to be into the Word. Where does the Word get taught? In the church. As followers of Christ, we need to remember that we're responsible to live our lives in a way that glorifies Christ, especially in light of His sacrifice for us. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16 says this, But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. And so God calls us as the body of Christ to be like Him in everything we say and do. Is that a challenge, my friend? You bet that's a hard challenge to live holy and godly. But God says, I'm calling you to a higher standard. I'm calling you to live a life that's going to be different. I'm calling you to a life with purpose, with direction. But I'm calling you to change. But he who calls you to change also enables you to change through his Holy Spirit. We're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Christ died for my sin. He rose again from the dead. Therefore, I must live my life in a way that brings honor and glory to the fact he gave his life for me. Am I willing to give my life for him? Philippians 1, 27a says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're, we're to conduct ourselves worthy. In other words, am I living the kind of life that merits a sacrifice of what Christ did on the cross for me? Do, am I living that way? And then the pastor read this, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, I've chosen you. And I want you to go about singing the praises of what I've done so people can hear about what I can do in their lives. So when somebody says, hey, what's happening in your day? He says, man, God is so good. And they look at you. Really? See, our character must be consistent with the message of the gospel. And that's the challenge, my friend. That's the huge challenge. Because I'm going to live my life every single day in such a way that people see that what I teach and what I believe actually changes my life on a daily basis. And so often, let's be honest, we struggle with the fact that sometimes our lives don't measure up with the message. You hear me? We've all been there. That's why we're thankful to say, God, I screwed up again. Lord, forgive me, I've sinned again. And I come to you and ask you to forgive my sin and cleanse me. And, and Lord, give me a fresh start because I need those fresh starts almost every day. And then he goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3.16 these words. Beyond no question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Actually, that stanza that you see in verse 16 was the actual, uh, a well-known hymn, but that was known in the first century and practiced in public worship service. It was kind of a hymn in the church. It says he appeared in body. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the hymn was written of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First, he was revealed in the flesh. The book of Philippians says 
and 2, 6, and 7, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but listen to this, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. In other words, remember Jesus Christ. What was his mandate? He was what? We talked about last week, a servant. How did he become a servant? He humbled himself. Almighty God, who spoke the world into existence, humbled himself to become like the ones he created. And we struggle with sometimes saying, Lord, uh, I really don't want to do that. And God says, I humbled myself. I think you need to also to be more like me. John 1, 10 to 14 says this. He was in the world. Though the world was made through him, the world did not what? Didn't recognize him. He spoke into existence. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive. Even in his hometown of Bethlehem, they said, aren't you Joseph's son? Like, what are you doing here? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you, you say, you believe on me? I'm giving you power. Power to become sons and daughters of God. Children born not of natural descent, not by physical birth, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, speaking of Jesus Christ. That's also a term for that. It's called incarnation. Made his dwelling among us. The Word actually is tabernacled. That's a New Old Testament word. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the creator of our world, but the world didn't know him. They were separated from him because of their sin. And since they weren't able to reach him, he came to them, showing his love for them. The most significant event in human history was when God took on human flesh and came among us and lived among us to bear our sins on the cross. Never, ever forget that, because it's easy to forget. He then ascended to heaven, victorious over sin and death, the church is the continuing incarnation of God incarnate. Let me just explain what that means. We are sons and daughters of the living God who are to flesh out in our daily lives what Christ fleshed out in his life during his three years of ministry on earth. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. So we're to live our lives in such a way that people can see through our lives Jesus Christ. Here's a question for you. It's kind of tough. Do people see Jesus in me every day? And if we're honest, we're going to say, not quite. Maybe not at all. And yet that's what he calls a church to be. His hands, his feet, his eyes in a world that desperately, desperately needs to see that there is hope. Because I talk to people in this world, there's not a lot of hope going around. There's a lot of upset, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of dismay, and most people tend to live for themselves in a narcissistic society that lives in a pornographic culture. It says, vindicated in the spirit. The second line of the hymn says that he was vindicated in the spirit. The word vindicated means shown, declared, pronounced, exhibited to be righteous. How did the Holy Spirit show the righteousness of Jesus Christ? All throughout his ministry. In Matthew 
chapter 3, 13 to 17, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be now, for it is proper for us to this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came down upon him, and God said, This is my Son, and I'm well pleased with him. Jesus was baptized to fill all unrighteousness, all righteousness, and the Spirit demonstrated that righteousness by descending on him. Peter tells of the demonstration of Jesus' righteousness when he preached. And in Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. It says he was seen by the angels. The third line of the verse is that he was seen by angels. That happened all throughout his ministry on earth. When he was born, the angels brought the news to the shepherds in the fields, as we see in Luke 3, 2. After being tempted in the wilderness, angels ministered to him in Matthew 4.11. Angels are seeing you too. They watch, hoping that you will turn from sin and receive Christ. Jesus said in Luke 15.10, In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. See, so every time a person comes to saving knowledge of Christ, there's a party in heaven. They're rejoicing. Aren't you glad that they party in heaven? Now, I know you never thought about that, but I think their party's a little different than the parties we go to. But there's, there's partying. There's rejoicing. There's this ominous, just like fantastic. I wonder what heaven's party is going to be like. That'd be a real thought to think about, isn't it? It says he was preached among the nations. The name of Christ has also been proclaimed to the nations. For the last 2,000 years, one miraculous man's name has been spread through the entire earth, and that name is Jesus Christ. Why has it spread? Why has the gospel gone through to so many people in that name? Because he is true, and the power of life that comes through him is undeniable. That name, Jesus Christ, has had more influence on earth than any other name that we've ever heard of, ever. There's power. In the name of Jesus Christ. It says, believed on in the world. Next line said he believed he was believed on in the world. Believing in Jesus Christ is the most important decision you will ever make. The Bible says in John 3:16, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but in what have everlasting life. Those who believe in Christ will live for eternity. Those who do not, will die in their sins. The book of Romans says in Romans 10, verse 9, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know what people tell me? Man, Pastor, that's too simple. <laughs> God meant it to be simple. But it also takes a lifetime to live it out. It takes a lifetime. Romans 10, 11, anyone who believes in him shall never be put to shame. Have you ever found yourself in disappointment? Believe on Jesus Christ for your salvation. And that disappointment will be gone. Taken up in glory. Last of him says he was taken up in glory. Jesus lived on the earth for about, what, 33 and a third years. 
until those who hated him put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He died and was buried for three days, but the Bible says he rose victorious over death. In Acts 2, 22-24, Peter says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. He rose from the dead. He actually appeared to about 500 people, Scripture says. And finally, in Acts 1, 9 to 11, read this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going. And when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Because that same man who you see rising will one day come again. Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. But that's not the end of the story. What did this angel say? He's coming back again. How about you? That should excite you. Because as you look at this world, sometimes it can look pretty miserable sometimes. you got to remember the old phrase, I keep repeating it over and over again, this world is not my home. Get used to saying that. We should get plaques like that put in our houses. This world is not my home. You know, you got happy home, happy wife, happy life. No, we, we, you got all these crazy plaques you put in your house, but you should put them over in your house. This world is not my home. Remember that. Because sometimes, folks, we live for the wrong things. We really do. This world's not my home. A day is coming soon when Jesus Christ will return to earth. And when he does, he'll call his family, his household, his gathering, his ecclesia to be, come to be with him. And that day, the world will be judged for rejecting him. You've heard that history. It is the truth. God came to earth to reach you because you couldn't reach him. He died to take the penalty of your sins. He's asking you to believe in him so that he can give you eternal life so you can be part of God's family. Uh, sometimes I think you say, well, boy, there's so many people that really don't want anything to do with church because they don't really like church. But I think that oftentimes they've done it. They've rejected a caricature of what God really meant for church. Because when the church is living the way God intended, it lives in harmony. But with harmony, is there conflict in the church? I got one nod. The rest of you are like, uh, I don't know, is there? <laughs> Folks, let me tell you. There's always conflict in a family. Is there conflict in your home? Some of you didn't answer that one. Might be a bit of a challenge. When you put two human people together, regardless of who they are, there's going to be conflict. But the issue with conflict is teaching people to work things out together. And how do we do that? By turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, who as an example set himself as a servant, and learning to say, please forgive me, I was wrong. I've had to learn to say that a few times, you know. Actually, a whole lot more than a few times. 
Because in case you didn't know it, this pastor's not perfect. You, you understand that? If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She can tell you a lot. So. But part of the body of Christ is learning that even though we're not perfected yet, the Bible says when he comes to take us, we will be as he is, fully perfect. But in the meantime, the body of Christ, the church, is to live itself out in such a way that people see genuine authenticity in how we live and how we work together and how we strive together to live for God in a way that brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. So people watch you relate to your wife. They watch you relate to your children. They watch you relate to others. And they say this, this phrase, there's something different about you. Every time somebody says that to people, go, yes, good. I'm just hoping they're saying that you're different because you're like, you're weird. But, but, you're, but, you're, but you're different because you don't swear. You don't curse. You admit when you're wrong. There's a sense of humility in your life. And when it happens, I say, glory to God, because Lord, it's what you're doing in my life. It's not me, really. And that's what you want. You want God's life fleshed out through you, the body of Christ, your lighthouse. So people see Jesus in you. Not so that everybody can praise God for lighthouse, no. So everybody can praise God for who he is and what he's doing in your lives. Because they realize this word of God is becoming real in your life every single day. Do we make mistakes? Oh, yeah. Do we forgive? Mm-hmm. And we ask God for more grace in our lives on a daily basis. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you've created your body, the church, is a church of the living God. Father, help us to emulate. Help, help us to be like you, Father God, every single day of our lives to those we meet. But Lord, we also recognize that you've called us out from this world to be your body, to be your hands, to be your feet. But Father, would you also enable us through your Holy Spirit to live by the commands you give in Scripture? Help us to live our lives in such a way that your glory would be manifest through our lives. Help us live in such a way that people see Jesus in us. Because, Lord, we want to bring honor and glory to you, especially, Lord, in light of the great sacrifice you made in giving your life for us and rising again from the dead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.